Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Chris Columbus has brought to the screen some of the biggest American family films of the last 20 years. Adventures in Babysitting, Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire. He also produced and directed the first two Harry Potter films and produced the third as well. I'm a what? A wizard and a thumping good and I'd wager. Once you trade up a little. No, you've made a mistake. I mean, I can't be a, a, a wizard. I mean, I'm just Harry. I've known Chris for a long time. We were in school together at NYU. I lived at, uh, started at Weinstein and then um, moved to Reuben. You were in Reuben? I was in Reuben, and I think that's where we met. That's how I was in Reuben. Yeah. For Columbus, NYU was more than just a place to learn the craft he loved. Film school for me was the only, it was sort of the only way out, you know. Um, I grew up in a, both of my parents were factory workers in Ohio. Um, my future was basically working at either my father's aluminum factory or my mother's automotive factory. Literally. They didn't own them. They was just, <laughs> right. I was, I'd just be working. Because if they did, you could own them now. I could own them so now. you made a bad decision. <laughs> I did. Although I don't think uh, there's much work there. But at the time, that was it, you know, and, and the only escape, really, for me, uh, were movies. And what were movies to you then? There was no uh, DVD, there was no, no cable television. How did you... Movies were the uh, either the CBS late-night movie. I would sneak out of bed and watch the late-night movie on CBS at oh, 11.30. The late show. And just stay in the movie theaters on the weekend. There were only two theaters... Two films would be two separate theaters. There was uh, no multiplexes back then. And I would watch whatever film came into town over and over. And I remember something clicked when I saw uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Something really, and I, I watched it three times. And I, I just was amazed by the movie. And I didn't, at the time, there's no 
understanding. There's no idea. No, nobody knew about film schools. Nobody knew that you could actually go to school and learn how to become. I didn't even know what a director was. Mm-hmm. So I put my energy into illustrating and writing comic books. I thought, still didn't understand the film concept, but I started to draw Spider-Man comics, Thor comics, Hulk comics. I, I wanted a job at Marvel. At the, in the Marvel universe. Did you universe. think about that seriously? That was my goal. I still love movies, but I, I didn't understand how to get into it. inaccessible. Yeah. Completely inaccessible. I felt the same way. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the comic books and all of the – this is very naive of me, but all the comic book superheroes lived in New York City. So this was this <laughs> magical place for me as a kid because I'm drawing New York City all the time. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was spending about 8 to 12 hours alone a day, and I, um, I wanted to work with people. I wanted to be with people. What did your parents think about that? They thought I could go to art school at like Kent State or something, you know, right. that I could go to art school and I could um, draw these comics and that's fine. Then I saw The Godfather. The Godfather was re-released in 1974, I think, and re-released. And then the next movie I saw was Blazing Saddles. I saw those two movies. It changed my life. Both ends of the spectrum. I realized with Blazing Saddles, the possibilities of what you could do with film were endless. Right. And Time Magazine came out with a one-page article about film schools. I'd never heard of film school. I didn't know what this could possibly be. And I read about Martin Scorsese, and I read about Francis Ford Coppola, and I read about USC and UCLA and NYU. And I said to my parents, this is what I want to do. What did they say? They were extraordinarily supportive. They were? They were amazingly supportive. Every other relative in my family was not supportive. Right. They said, oh, you're going to... You're insane. Be, you're going to be back here in two years. You can't handle New York City. Uh, and it just, it just was more fire. It was just... I was like, fuck you. I'm doing it. I got to New York, and I remember my father drove me up to Weinstein, and he looked at the city and looked at the dorm, and he said, let's go home. I'll drive you back home now. And I said, no yeah. way. No way. I was in... I was literally in Oz. Weinstein does look like the library at a community college in the Soviet <laughs> Union. Okay. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a very worst. undistinguished building. Yeah. Uh, but I uh, immediately fell in love with the city, and I knew that I had no choice but to succeed. I had to find a way to succeed, or I would be back in the middle of Ohio working in an aluminum factory. And that's hideous. So you get there, and you ever touched any film equipment before? Uh, yeah, super. My parents did buy me a Super 8 sound camera, which enabled me to, to start to make films, actually. I made a 20 minute film for my theology class because I went to a very strict Catholic school. So it was a theology class that was dealing with social issues. So we made a film about abortion. Uh, vasectomies, and I was very inspired at the time by SNL. Remember, SNL just nineteen what nineteen seventy six. SNL had just come. You know, we would spend our Saturday nights watching Saturday Night Live. Uh-huh. So I was doing these basically commercial parodies that I versions that I had seen on SNL, and I screened it for the class. The class loved it. The priest was horrified. Yeah. And, and what happened is the uh, the feeling of showing that movie and hearing those all of those kids laughing in this small Ohio town really, really hit me. I mean, I, it's an addictive feeling. You know what it's like right. being on stage. Well, yeah. showing your film and having people respond to it became very addictive. So that fueled uh, my desire to get there as well. What did your parents say about all your politically incorrect filmmaking? It was very <laughs> dark stuff back then. You know, was, what did they say? Uh, they, you know, my, my mother went with it. My father didn't really want to have much to do with it. He figured, okay, that, you know, my father was most, most of the time my father was under a car 
repairing it, you know, in, in the garage when he wasn't right. working or having a beer. So I... Um, as long as he's not on the streets. As long, exactly. He can my make, parents. Yeah, as long as he's not taking drugs. That's true. And that, that actually, you know, my mother was very supportive. My mother was probably much more supportive than my father about what I wanted to do. And she had, she shared sort of that dark sense of humor that I had as well. So she supported those, those movies. And she watched, I used to watch SNL with her. She loved it. So you, you get to Weinstein. You, you had a Super 8 sound camera, but you get to Weinstein. And what's, what are the first recollections you have of that when you get there to go to NYU? Honestly, NYU, the night I got there, spon- drinking age was 18, sponsored a bar tour. Can you imagine them doing that these days? Sure. Eight to ten bars in the East Village, they would take a group of freshmen and go to each yeah. bar. Chumley's. Chumley's, uh, McSorley's. Sure. And that's where I met my best friends, and the, the, that's where I met my future producing partner, Michael Barnathan. We met that first night. Bar night. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you could be, I mean, the lawsuits are ridiculous. And we met, and we hit it off, and, and there was this, I mean, you know what, it, what it's like. You go into this community of everyone who shares your deepest love of something like film. Yeah. And you have someone to talk to about it. I had yeah. no one to talk to about it in Ohio. Yeah. You know, I was this... Everyone's come there yeah. from the aluminum factory. Finally, I was able to have arguments and discussions. And we would get these into... You remember these intense, impassioned discussions about directors, you know. And, right. and it, Frank Capra, was he really great? Or was he, you know, was he much more of a populist director? And you get into these fantastic discussions that didn't exist for me in Ohio. Right. So I, I was in... Uh, you know, it was like Christmas morning every day at NYU. So when you go to film school, did you go there and when you started to become a wash in all that process, did you love it and you ate it up and you said more and more and more? You love the technical. No, actually, I don't. I mean, the technical side of it, I have very little interest in it. I want to know as much as I need to know so I can go onto a set and block a scene with actors. But I'm much more, and I was, I've always been this way, I'm much more interested in connecting with the actors on a set because what I've seen as a producer over the years as a, I saw it as a writer when I was just starting out directors a lot of directors tend to be afraid of actors right. which I, I it drives me insane I right. cannot understand well, they're suspicious of actors they're suspicious yeah. of actors they don't want to discuss you know it's this whole thing well if an actor has a question is he challenged I love that I love that back and forth that discussion that You know, I I thought it was kind of cool in uh, the Apocalypse Now documentary when Brando and Coppola were sitting there for for six days discussing discussing his character. I love that about actors. So I'm much more drawn to working with the actors than I am working, you know, figuring out what lens I need to use. I know what I want the film to look like. I know how I want it to feel. But I don't need to know the numbers. I just want to make sure that when I get on that set, those actors and I that we trust each other, no matter so, what kind so, of film it is. So there must be moments, though, where you're sitting there on the set of a Harry Potter film, and Roger Deakins, who's one of the greatest cinematographers of his generation, is there. And do you sit there and say, what do you think, Roger? What lens? You, you defer to him about all the cinematography, or do you sometimes sit there and go, no, no, I think it's this, or I think you we must are, have an opinion. Oh, completely. Right, sure. It's not like, a, yeah, complete. in other words, I... Sto- you don't abdicate all that to somebody. No, no, I, I, I do my homework, I storyboard everything, um, I do my own shot list in the morning, I know exactly if I want to use a crane or a dolly, or a, and I also don't, there, there's the other side 
of me where I've seen directors who only want to deal with the actors and don't want to block the scene and leave that all up to the cinematographer. I'm mm-hmm. sure you've seen that as well. But I And I'm not interested in that. I want to have the control, certainly, of the visual look of the film. But I don't need to get... I, again, I don't need to say, I want a 40 here. I don't, th- that means nothing to me. What means something to me is to look through the camera and know if I've got it right. Uh, but it's as I said, it's much more important... The writing is extraordinarily important to me and the connection with the actors and the crew as well. You know, I, I've seen a lot of directors work and there's no connection with people. And I hate that. I just hate those directors who sort of build a wall up around them. And maybe maybe it works for them. I'm sure it works for some of them. But for me, it's a matter of connecting with almost every person on that set. So when I leave the set, they all feel that they've had a great day. I know it's a weird thing to say, but... It's very important to me that that, oh, that the that's... the person who has the smallest job on the set feels as if he's he or she has contributed something that, that day, you know. And then when you left NYU, what did you do? I left NYU. I had actually I was lucky enough. I had a nineteen eighty nineteen eighty. I left, but in seventy eight, I had written um, something interesting happened that I had a scholarship. I had this great scholarship that got me through NYU the first year. And my mother would call me. You remember we had those pay phones at the end of our dorm right, hallways. Right, right. There's no cell phone. So every Sunday I would go to the pay phone and call home. And my mother would say, Chris, don't forget to re- go to the bursar's office and sign. I had to sign some papers so I would renew my scholarship. And I would say, Mom, no problem. I'd forget. I'd be doing something. That went on for six weeks. The seventh week I called. She was screaming at me. She said, you lost the scholarship. I said, oh, Christ, I lost the scholarship? She goes, this summer you're going to have to work at the aluminum factory. So, <laughs> so I, went back, oh, no. I went back to Ohio and I was working basically swing shifts. I would work Were you day really? shifts, afternoon shifts, and night shifts. This is after your first year? My first year. Did your mother make you a little necklace with a little piece of aluminum on it? If you carry around your neck after that, <laughs> in the shape of a crucifix, right? They wrote "Don't fuck." She wrote "Don't fuck up" on it again. Oh God! I, I so anyway. So I realized if I was on the night shift, I could read. So that first year, I was just read you know novels for eight hours. I had to do it again after my sophomore year. So I went back my sophomore year, and I realized if I could get on the night shift for for the entire summer, I could write a screenplay. So what I did is I remember these gigantic hulking cylinders of aluminum. And I would sneak behind the aluminum cores and sit there with a notepad, and I wrote my first screenplay. It was a screenplay called Jocks about high school football. My experiences with high school football, and I was a terrible football player, but I, I, I you know, it was a very you personal story. Up, yeah. yeah, I suited up. And I brought that back to my writing teacher, a guy named Jesse Kornbluth, who gave it to his agent. And his agent was a guy named Ron Bernstein, who still works in, in New York. And Bernstein took me on as a client my junior Gosh. year. A, a producer has since passed away, Steve Friedman, optioned it for five grand. So your professional career, which, which began as a writer, as a screenwriter, right. was leveraged by Kornbluth, who was your teacher at NYU. Yeah. That five grand prevented me from ever having to go back to the aluminum right. factory. Um, so that was my junior year. And then my senior year, I decided to not write because I was getting writing offers, which was great, you know, but I was in college and I wanted to take that time to do my senior film, my senior thesis. So I did a senior film that year. And then when I was out, you know, after college, I just uh, my agent started to get me writing gigs and I started writing after uh, as soon as I graduated, basically. Where did you live? 
Uh, I lived on 26. So you stayed in New York. Stayed in 20. Yeah, 26th Street between 6th and 7th. Um, so one school, you were in Chelsea. Che- so one yeah. school ended, you decided you were going to stay in New York. Yeah, I decided to stay in New York. Because, I, I, again, I was always very wary of going to L.A. I, I don't know why. But well, I, yeah, why were you wary of it even then? You know, the weird thing is I, I have so many friends who think of L.A. as, like, that's where all the films are made. That's where, that's where the magic happens. But for me, I, was, I just, at that point, after four years in New York, I felt very comfortable in New York and had this vision of being able to make every film in Manhattan or writing in Manhattan and living in Manhattan. I was kind of out of work, and I couldn't figure out what I was going to do next. And a friend of mine, Mitch, said, you know, there hasn't, since Jaws, there really hasn't been a great movie that's featured. He used the word monster. There has not been a great monster movie made. And I said, uh, that's a good idea. That's interesting. And in the loft I lived in, we had these mice scurrying around on the floors, and I would sleep with my hand draped over the bed, and mice would go by in the middle of the night. I thought, these tiny creatures are frightening. So I spent the next six weeks writing the script called Gremlins. And I wrote it on spec. I wasn't paid for it. And I sent it to my agent who um, liked the script but felt it was a little dark and still sent it to about 50 producers and uh, studio executives. And everyone passed on it. And Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, was leaving his office on a Friday and passed his secretary's desk and it was sitting there. That's why so much of this business is luck. He passed the script and saw the title and said, oh, that looks interesting. Picked it up. Read it that weekend and decided he wanted to option the movie. Now, I didn't know this. I got a call at my loft. Barnathan answers the phone and says, there's someone on here who says he's Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I get, I get the phone and he goes, Chris, it's Steven Spielberg. I was stunned. Oh my God. And, um, yeah, he flew me out to L.A. I got to meet Spielberg. And uh, that sort of was, What year was that? That was 1982. And I lived in L.A. for nine months at that point. So what happens in that nine months? He's giving you notes or there's creative people? He would give me notes. Now, Gremlins was sort of off and running, and someone else was even rewriting it as I was working on another script for Steven. For some strange reason, I had sort of carte blanche. I could go into his office whenever I wanted, he, uh, whether he liked me. I don't know what it was, but I had an office three doors down from him. I would just go down there whenever he would be sitting there with Richard Gere or or, uh, or Warren Beatty one time. He's like, Chris, come on in. What do you? And, yeah. and I would start to talk to him about ideas. One day he's looking through these old EC comic books and he says, look at this title, Chris, The Goon Children. And I said, The Goon Children, that's a cool title. And we came up with this story together about these kids who find a treasure map and it was The Goonies. I would write three pages of Goonies run to Stephen's office, give it to him. He would make some notes. I would run back to my office and make the changes. And we finished that script in about six weeks. Then I wrote Young Sherlock Holmes with him, kind of in the same way. For Amblin. For Amblin. And that's when I, and that, that's when I realized. Who directed Goonies? Uh, Richard Donner. Right, Dick Donner directed Goonies. Yeah. And who directed Young Sherlock Holmes? Barry Levinson. Yeah. So it was... Uh, so you have Steven Spielberg... Producing your films, and you're three doors down from him, and Richard Donner, who directed Superman. I'm going I'm to tell people in the audience yeah. who don't remember this timeline, and uh, Levinson, who's directed many great films. They direct. Those are your first two movies that get made. Well, Gremlins is the first one. Joe Dante as well. Joe Dante. Yeah. So you go from Joe Dante to Donner to Barry Levinson for the first three films that your name is on the script. Yeah. And your was- name was on as the writer of all three. All three. Yeah. You know, it was kind of a heady experience. At the same time, I, I always knew this is what I need to be do- This is what I should be doing. Right. This is what I have to be doing. Yeah. What did you learn from Spielberg? 
Spielberg was like graduate school of filmmaking for me. Right. Spielberg was like um, I learned shortcuts, and I learned uh, basically it was a Billy Wilder quote that Stephen, you know, nailed into my head every day, which was, "Don't tell the audience something more than once." I learned how to edit material. I learned how to write better dialogue. And I learned how to be much more visual as a writer from Stephen. So it was a great relationship, you know. Um, and it still is a great relationship to this day. We yeah. had the opportunity to work together a couple of years ago. So I, I really loved that time. But at the same time, I needed to get back to Manhattan. Why? I don't know. I just felt like I, miss, I missed it. I mean, it was a, it's a very simple. But did you have a sense? Because I find other people have the same thing. It's better for me to stay here for my career. You, you didn't think along those lines. No, I, I don't think at the time I was able to articulate it. You know, 20, 30 years down the road, now I can look back and, and understand why I did it. Because I, I was seeing the beginning of people losing touch with reality. Why do directors not have long careers? They don't have long careers because they become extremely successful. Then they move into these huge mansions and live an isolated life. They watch movies in their screening room. They don't do their own grocery shopping. They don't pump their own gas. They don't get out there on the street. At the end of all that, you've lost connection to real right. people. What are you making movies about? Even if they're right. fantasy films. Even if, Again, I did not realize it at the time. I realized it years later. I realized the reason I went back to New York was to connect with everyone again. So I could go to the corner superette and buy a carton of orange juice for $40, you know, so I could see people every day, take my dry cleaning and take my laundry in. That hasn't changed to this day. Right. I have not changed. You know, I have a great housekeeper now in San Francisco, but for the most part, again, because I'm a director and nobody really knows what the hell I look like, I'm you've, anonymous. Yeah, you, but you've, yeah, you've kept this very low profile. Nobody knows what I do in San Francisco. I mean, I have a couple of friends, but... You prefer that. I love it. You I do. love it. It's fantastic. These are all conscious choices you made. Not... I think sub, some of them were subconscious at the beginning. The only thing that mattered to me about uh, becoming a director was longevity. I wanted to make sure that my career would last for decades, no matter what I was doing. And I, I felt that part of that has been this ability to sort of hide in plain sight in a weird way. Now I understand it. So you're a writer and you do Gremlins and you do Goonies and you do Young Sherlock Holmes. Is the notion of you directing a film, is it starting to percolate? Do you go to Spielberg and say, I want to direct this one? No, it came. It started with Jesse Kornbluth. Jesse Kornbluth put into my head at NYU, the only way you're going to get to become a director is by writing a few successful screenplays. After uh, Young Sherlock Holmes, then I realized Goonies and Gremlins had been successful enough that maybe I could get a directing gig. My agent sent me a copy of the script called Adventures in Babysitting. Elizabeth Shue. With Elizabeth Shue and uh, Anthony Rapp. I loved, the, I loved the script. I thought, this is something I could do. And I had great producers, Linda Opst and Deborah Hill, who were very supportive of me as a first-time director. They agreed to let me direct the movie. And that was uh, the first day on the set was a little, little horrifying. How so? I, it was the thing I had dreamed about my in entire California. life. In California? No, we shot it in Canada. Okay. It was my dream to be directing a film, yet at the same time, I realized I had to go onto the set and face 250 people and sure. tell them what to do. And you'd you know? never done that before? No. I got over my fear pretty quickly because I had to. 
It's like jumping off. Do you still have an apprehension about that now? When it's first day of school, and I mean shooting, yeah. it's not Chris who was drawing his Marvel comics. <laughs> right. It's not Chris that was hiding behind the aluminum spools, right. writing scripts and everything while everybody else is taking a nap at the aluminum factory. It's not Chris alone. There's the writer-director who has this kind of monastic process. Then there's the guy that's got to go out and be the captain of the ship on the deck of the ship with 250 or 300 people there. Right. So that's a skill you had to develop, correct? I think so. But I again, because – well, definitely so. You know, it was terrifying yeah. the first couple of days. But then I it's realized – Yeah. I realized that a lot of these crew guys – we're like beaten animals because directors – there are so many directors who are such assholes. They're right. so kind of cruel and angry yeah. and mean. They're working something out on the set of the film. Yeah, yeah. and I thought that's not going to work. That won't work for me. And I realized after three or four weeks that people were responding just to the fact that I was not grumpy in the morning, that I wasn't pissed <laughs> off all the time. The fact that I was genuinely a pretty happy guy – and I really valued what everybody was doing. And if somebody made a mistake, I wasn't ready to rip their head off. I just, I understood it. By the end of that movie, I real, I learned a valuable lesson, how to earn the respect of the crew and your actors. So, so you're there, you make the film, and what happens? The film opened to like $7 million back then, which was a perceived disaster. So I'm thinking I'm never going to work again. What happened is the second weekend, it did something that no... Film, the, the, certain films, films do, films. few yeah. films do, uh, which is it shot up 40% in attendance. So we did better the second weekend. Getting that news that we increased 40% was shocking. And it was great for the movie, and it was great. I was able to go off and make another film then. And uh, what do you go do? I did a film that I wrote. I pitched a film to Jeffrey Katzenberg, and I went off and wrote something else instead, a movie called Heartbreak Hotel about right. my own obsession with Elvis Presley. The movie opens on a Friday. I read Roger Ebert's review calling it one of the worst films of the year. Right. I'm driving cross-country with my wife at that point because we edited in L.A. for two months. And we get by the time we get to the uh, probably in the, Texas somewhere, this is Wednesday, the movie is already playing on a double bill in the afternoon. They've already – the theater yeah. owners wanted Shelved to get it. it out of there as if, yeah. if it was nuclear waste. So um, once again, I'm thinking it's over. I'll go back to writing. At the time, my first child, Eleanor, was born, and I got a script uh, from John Hughes. We both had the same agent, um, and he said, do you want to do the third Christmas Vacation movie? I was like, that's not really – I didn't dream of becoming a filmmaker to do that particular movie, but I thought I needed the gig, and John yeah. Hughes is supporting me, so – I started to do that movie. I shot Second Unit, and I had such a disastrous relationship with the star – Chevy Chase, <laughs> who, you know, it's no, he has no shortage of enemies. Uh, yeah, it yeah. was so disastrous yeah. and so humiliating for me, just based on three meetings that I quit. I said, John, I can't do this. Yeah. I cannot make did John, this movie. Did John get that? Did John, John understand? He goes, he's like, you know, Chevy is a complicated guy. Yeah. He's complicated. a rich food. I yeah. said, let, let me tell you something. He treat, he, if, when I first walked in, he thought I was an assistant. Yeah. So I'm like, I can't really work this way. I, I, and so I, I quit. And then I was really, I thought I was really in trouble. And John and I got along great. So John sent me the script for Home Alone. Again, luck plays Incredible. into it. 
And I fell in love with the script. I thought it was a great script. I think he wrote it in two days. I loved him. Mm -hmm. Loved him. I mean, his life and how he went and how he kind of left and, you know, gave up and moved back to Chicago. Not gave up, but he kind of kind of walked away from it. was always so sad to me because mm -hmm. I thought, God, I, I mean, I was hoping I could become the next John Candy in his career and just right. be the, the grown, you know, leading, crazy Uncle Buck of the next right. barrage of films of his. I loved working with him, mm -hmm. loved him. What was your experience like with him? It was exactly the same. Um, I walked off of a movie that he had given me, so there was never a reason for him to call me back. But I, for some strange reason, I think he respected that or yeah. he understood it. And, and being Chevy, he understood. Yeah, I think so. And he, <laughs> uh, you know... When I read this script, I thought, this is a gift, this script. This script is really, really important. And, John, the only concern I had was I had a, uh, you know, I had a newborn at the time, and John liked to work from about 10, when he, was when he was a producer in writing, you know, he wrote all night long. So we would be doing pre-production during the day on Home Alone, and then for story meetings, I'd go to his house in Lake Forest, and we'd work from 10 to about 5 in the morning. So I was getting... During the pre-production hours of, of uh, Home Alone, I was getting about two hours sleep. And John, half of the time, just want, he told these great stories. So he would tell stories. You probably remember and smoke. this. And smoke. And these stories would go on for three hours before we ever got into the movie, yeah. the fact that we were making a movie. He gave me, once he saw the first day of dailies for Home Alone, he gave me an amazing amount of freedom as a filmmaker. And that really felt great. That was, I felt no pressure. Because I always, to this day, feel like I'm going to walk on a movie and get fired. But with John, he made me feel very secure and created sort of a safe atmosphere for me immediately. Who cast Macaulay? Well, John put him in Uncle Buck. Right. And John said, you should see this kid. But John never said, cast him. Yeah. So Macaulay came up to my New York apartment, he and his father, the first kid I met, and he was incredibly charming and terrific. But I said to John, just because I felt like I wanted to be responsible, I said, I should meet some other kids. So I met about 300 other kids and then <laughs> right. came back around to Macaulay. Yeah. Let me get back to you, John. I'm going to go meet 300 <laughs> other kids, and then I'll call you about Macaulay. I had to do my job, yeah. yeah. He, but Macaulay was the first one you saw. Macaulay was the first one I saw, and he was... You know, it was it, it was an interesting situation, kind of like the kids in in Harry Potter a little bit. Macaulay had only done one or two movies, so he would do a line. He would he would say one line, maybe two lines, and then get distracted. So a lot of that film is cut into pieces right. just so we could get a, his performance together. But what happened on screen was amazingly charming. And you had. Uh... Heard is the father. John Heard, yeah. And Catherine is the mother. Now, Heard thought he was making Heard, who I love. <laughs> but I loved him in Cutter's Way. Remember, <laughs> exactly. Cutter's Way, one of the great performances. Exactly, yeah. But while he was making Home Alone, he thought he was making the, the biggest piece of shit in the world. Right. And he was, he was a pain in the ass a little yeah. bit. He comes back on Home Alone 2, and the first day he's shooting, I yell, action. He, he breaks character. And he said, I just would like to say to Chris and the crew... I owe you a big apology. You made a great movie the first time, and I'm yeah. here to support you. <laughs> I right, thought, right. wow, we have it in dailies. I still have yeah. a tape of that. And I got to work with John Candy for the first time. And John Candy came in for one day of shooting. We had him for one day, and he has like six scenes in the movie. So we shot for 24 hours, Oof. 24 hours straight. And Candy kept going. He yeah. just would continue to improvise. And it was my first sort of foray into improvisation. John would do a scripted take. And then he would start to play. Allow me to introduce myself. Gus Polinski. How are you? Polka King of the Midwest. 
and he loved improvising. He was he was brilliant uh, at it. I had a few hits a few years ago. Uh, that's why I, you know, just polka, 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 polka. No, it, Twin Lakes polka, Damavuji polka, aka Kiss Me polka, polka twist. In a minute, Chris Columbus talks about working with another brilliant improviser, Robin Williams. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Chris Columbus says he wanted to work with Robin Williams ever since he saw him in Good Morning Vietnam in 1987. Five years later, Columbus got his chance. I feel like I've known you for years. <sighs> Maybe we knew each other in another life. <laughs> I would love for you to come and work with us. So would I. Great. <laughs> oh, it would be an honor. 
Mrs. Doubtfire, a film about a divorced father who dresses as a Scottish nanny to trick his ex-wife into hiring him to care for their kids, won a Golden Globe for Best Comedy. Robin Williams won a Globe for Best Actor. But before all that would happen, before the filming even began, Chris Columbus had to meet Williams for lunch. And I was terrified. I'd worked with guys like Pesci, who I admired, and, and Dan Stern, but Robin was a true superstar at the time. Right. And I was, I was nervous about how it would go, and we just we hit it off immediately. You know, we wanted to, we really connected. Much of Mrs. Doubtfire was shot in San Francisco, and Columbus took the opportunity to move his growing family out west. It's a great place to raise a family. And I felt Manhattan would be a little difficult. Um, We were about to have our third kid, and I thought, and two of the kids had been born at Lenox Hill in Manhattan. You know, I can't, and I was having, I was walking down the street in Manhattan with my toddler, and I couldn't hear what she was saying to me. I couldn't, you know, she's telling, and I thought, I've got to, I've got to be in a calmer place. And I also fell in love with the city. San Francisco's a great city. city. And I had, and the relationship with Robin was, uh, still is terrific. Had a great relationship with Robin. And with Robin, again, it's like an, it's like a, a steroid version of John Candy, where you, John liked to improvise, but Robin lives to improvise. Right. So it was almost like seeing a, a Springsteen concert where he has to exhaust himself after four and a half hours of playing before he can go to sleep at night. With Robin, it was the same thing. We would shoot anywhere from 12 to 15 takes for each scene. And we would start with a very structured, scripted take and then move off of the script and change everything. And that's why that picture had to be shot with two or three cameras. Because so do the execs at Fox know that when you're going in to make a film and you have someone who's as varied and who's as, uh, um, uh, who's as uh, uh, what's the word, you know, as spontaneous as he is, did you call them up after the first week of shooting and say, fellas, just tear up the budget. We've got to start all over again. No, we stayed under, we stayed not under budget, but we stayed on budget. Maybe we went over one or two days because he is fast. He's oh. lightning fast. And right. we shot with two or three cameras. So you which... understood the, the, the cost uh, benefit analysis of his improvisations. He wasn't somebody who was overly indulgent. No. And you had actors, you had Sally Field and Pierce Brosnan Right. acting across from this guy, not knowing what he was going to say on take number five or six. Sure. So we had to have a camera on then because he's, I mean, the word genius is used a lot these days, but he, he comes up with these things so quickly he doesn't remember that he said them in the next take. Right. It's just he's possessed. I sometimes tell people shooting Mrs. Doubtfire was like shooting a documentary. And by the time we got to the editing room with millions of feet of film at the time, <laughs> we weren't shooting digitally yet, we had four or five different versions of the film. We had the PG version, the PG-13, the R, and the NC-17. I showed Marsha, who was the producer, because the film needed to be PG-13, so we knew we couldn't have an R-rated right. version of Mrs. You, you, Doubtfire. Yeah. I showed Marsha a cut of the film, and then Robin wanted to see it with an audience. And that was the sort of the thing that sealed the deal, because the audience really responded it was like it really was a huge response. So he wasn't that intrusive about cutting the film, and he just as long as the film worked in front of an audience, he was happy. Yeah, he left you alone. To that make was it. Film. It's just every day he we developed this sense of trust after a couple of weeks, and I would it was an incredibly exhausting shoot working fourteen hours a day, and I'd get home at night and I'd just pour myself a glass of wine, and the phone would ring, and it was Robin. How are dailies? How how was I in dailies? So right. he was he was very very obsessive in terms of his own performance. And Doubtfire sort of received mixed reviews. So for me, I, because, because of my love of 
of film history and because of my love of certain films, I was, you know, I'd always get, there was a level of keeping it very real by reading what some of these people were saying. Now, some, I, I should probably be, have a tougher skin and say, I don't give a shit what they're saying. So with Doubtfire, there was a sense that we had created a movie that was very successful, a, lo- a lot of people fell in love with, but it didn't, for me personally, I didn't get to that point where I wanted, you know, I always wanted to have that level of critical success and commercial success as well. And I just wasn't there yet. So I managed to stay hungry. I mean, there was a feeling of me that I needed to accomplish a lot more. And I really still feel that way. I, I still felt that there's a long way to go. There, back on Doubtfire, I felt that there was a long way to go. So the collaboration with, you, you did nine months after that. With Hugh Grant, yeah. With Hugh. And uh, how did that movie do? That movie did okay, okay. but that was the ins- you know that was the blowjob weekend. So right. that was a right. was that happening while you were shooting and when it was released? Being no, released? no, no, no. We were scheduled. We were doing a press conference. <laughs> this is exciting. This is insane. So we're doing an the international press conference on. I'd a like Saturday. to make a movie with you. I realize now. I want to make a movie with you, just so as a gag, I can get dressed up as a woman as a cross dresser <laughs> and solicit a detective on Hollywood Boulevard. Just as a gag. What if just you got arrested? Well, you, I want, the goal is to get arrested. <laughs> Just to get arrested. And then when I'm down to the police, I'm going to go, officer, can I explain something to you? This is really just to fuck with Chris Columbus because I really wanted to. I want oh, another sex scandal on the set of this it, it was, it, And it happened. I never I never saw it coming. Hugh was like the most yeah. <laughs> completely. Right. Yeah, I guess you Buttoned never see him. Button yeah. down, really conservative guy, always yeah. prepared for work, did a great job. We were doing the international press conference in L.A. The movie was finished. The movie was screening off the charts yeah. and audiences were loving it he was very popular so, so I thought wow this is gonna be a bigger hit than Doubtfire so we screen the movie on a Friday night for the press I go out to dinner with Hugh Jeff Goldblum and Laura Dern we have this great dinner I drive Hugh back to the hotel he says oh John Hughes sent me a script would you, would you mind looking at it uh, I don't know if I should do it it was 101 Dalmatians so I walked up to his hotel room took the script, and I said, okay, get a good night's sleep. We have a press conference tomorrow. I go to sleep. My phone rings at 6.59. It's Barnathan. He says, turn on the TV. I said, what? He goes, turn on the TV. <laughs> I turn on the news. Channel 257, mug shots. There goes you. 101 Dalmatians. I'm like, what the fuck did he do? So there's 150 international journalists that I was doing a press conference with Hugh. Hugh's disappeared he was at his agent's house he's gone he didn't come he got it was me facing all he of these journalists yeah, of course he didn't, it was amazing so, he does this the night before a press conference yeah. perfect and he's he since said that he did it because he didn't like the movie which he loved the movie so that's not why he, he, he did, did it. what he went to solicit a prostitute because he was so depressed about the he film he was so depressed about the film he had to have a prostitute I, god i gotta try that one <laughs> i know Hugh Grant's well-publicized arrest didn't completely kill nine months. It still made over $183 million. Mrs. Doubtfire grossed over $440 million worldwide. The Harry Potter films did even better. Two years ago, Chris Columbus produced The Help, a much smaller film which earned a Best Picture Oscar nomination. Clearly, Chris is skilled at selecting the right material to work with, or maybe he just surrounds himself with the right people. Well, it was my daughter, because she was the one who tried to convince me for about a year and a half to read the Harry Potter books. And finally, when I did, and I realized I wanted to make the movie, there were 25 other directors who, who were in line. 
they called it at Warner Brothers a bake-off. They said, uh, okay, we're going to meet all of these directors and whoever we you know, feel will we'll make the best movie, we'll hire. Um, so I was in line because Spielberg had dropped out. Steven Spielberg had dropped he out. He was the one that was going to direct the he film. He was going to direct the film. I think he wanted to combine the two books, add right. some cheerleaders and stuff. And I think that she wasn't, you know, Joe Rowling was not up for that. So for whatever reason, Steven backed backed away from the films. And then it was a group of literally 25 people. I had the last meeting because I wanted to rewrite the script for the studio. Um and what I did is I spent four, no, 11 days staying up to about 2 or 3 in the morning rewriting the Harry Potter script. Steve Clovis wrote a brilliant script. I just wanted to rewrite it with some camera cues, some, add some scenes from the book that weren't in there. And when I went in to meet with Warner Brothers, they said, why do you want to make this movie? And I said, because I've rewritten it for you for free. Now, no one ever does yeah, anything for free yeah, in yeah, Hollywood. Yeah. So uh, it, took, it still took them a few weeks to say yes, but I did get the gig. They... And I realized I still there was still one obstacle. I had to fly to Scotland to meet with J.K. Rowling. That was my sort of last interview. And if I fucked that up, I wouldn't have gotten the, the job. So I flew to Scotland, met with Joe, who I was expecting. I hadn't seen many photographs of her at that point. I was expecting Miss Marple. I was expecting some yeah. 60-year-old heavy-set woman in a floral dress. And it was she's, she's younger than, than we are. She's, she's very, very funny. One of the funniest people I've ever met. Sharp as attack, and we hit it off immediately. We spent three. She spent three hours listening to me. I had diarrhea of the mouth because I was telling her the kind of movie I wanted to make. At the end of it, she said, "That's exactly the kind of film I'd wow. want to make." And and I knew I got the job. Once I knew I got the job, I was fucking scared out of yeah. my wits. Everyone was obsessed about who was going to be cast in the movie. How we how how were we going to design Hogwarts? What was Quidditch going to be like? And I thought the only way to get through this, not to be, so I'm not standing in a corner, un, unable to face my crew, was to just sort of bury my head and start to work. You just, I just, just sort of went through every day. Move, I moved my family to London and went through every day making the best movie possible. And the great thing is, there were a core of us at the time, four of us: Joe Rowling, David Heyman, Steve Clovis, and myself. And we'd meet every couple of days, talk about the script, talk about the movie. And it was that core that really sh- helped me shape what eventually became all eight movies. And again, and she, and she was around during the screenwriting process or around the shooting as well, Rowling? No, she only came out for one day during the shooting. Why? Just to visit. She wasn't that interested in the right. shooting. <laughs> she just, as you can, if you're a visitor on a set, it's not that exciting after right. about two hours. Is, yeah. She came out when we were shooting Diagon Alley, but... During the screenwriting, pro- during the rewriting process, and during some of the de- design work, you know, I would take her through the Harry Potter factory, I called it. We would walk through the art department, and I would show her what I was thinking of for Diagon Alley or Gringotts or Hogwarts or the wizarding robes. And she just was always very collaborative. She'd say, oh, like the wand. She was very, very specific about everything. The, Harry's wand couldn't have any des- specific design to it because it was from an old tree that wouldn't, it was just a little crooked. And you, and it was that kind of specific comments that really sort of helped me find where I was going. I never was off the rails, though, because we did, we did share a similar, I think, vision for what we wanted the movie to be. And I, she would give us also indications that the films were going to get, the books, there were only three books at the time, remember, were going to get progressively darker. And this had to be sort of, the first one was sort of like the storybook 
version of Harry Potter. It's his origin story. It's still welcoming, a little dark. Yeah, yeah. And Hogwarts had to feel like the most welcoming place in the world. And then we would get little indications that it's going to start to fall apart as we move forward. We set that all into motion, that the movies would get darker and darker and darker. Did you, did you have a sense... Did you say, I think I've got this, I th- I, the I, film I, version of these books, I've got the recipe? Unfortunately, not, not until we were finished. We knew we were – we knew things were going well. So even though the kids had not had a lot of experience in acting, they were amazingly charming on screen and they felt like those characters. I think the first day that we really felt that we were on the right track is we shot the, uh, the, the, the opening of The Great Hall. And we're on this huge crane, and the kids are walking in. And our our visual effects guy, John Richardson, attached 450 candles to strings that were all burnt. Everyone had to light all these candles. There weren't any CGI candles in the shot. And I remember sitting in dailies and seeing the shot where the camera cranes up through the floating candles and realizing, oh, I think we're on to something yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that all felt good. We still had That's no cool. con- Yeah, it was fun. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, well, what was it like to work? One of my favorite actors I ever worked with was Gambon. Oh, God. He was <laughs> great. He was, well, I, I pr- remember I pr- He's such a character. I produced the movie that, that he, you know, when he, Richard Harris was Dumbledore for two films. Sure. Now, let me tell you something. With you. Yeah. That was one of the funniest people I've ever met Harris in my life. Harris is a... Yeah. And he refers to himself as Harris. Yes. And he... His... Harris won't do this. And Harris can't be seen doing this. <laughs> On the first day of shooting with Richard Harris, he tells me that he's learned the wrong scene. That he... It was a scene at the end I of the movie. the wrong scene. It's, it, it's, it was one of the final scenes for Dumbledore, but we happened to shoot it first. And he didn't learn it. And he explained to me that he had learned something else. I don't know if he was telling me the truth. Um, And that's the kind of guy he was. He was constantly, he would always try to piss off Maggie Smith by calling her Dame Maggie. Oh, Dame Maggie. (laughs) Yeah. It was so fun to watch. But I have to tell you. He's a bad boy. He was such a bad boy. Um, The the things that he got away with in his time just never, never, you couldn't get away with it today. Uh, But anyway, so Harris was in the first two. Then he passed away. The last thing he said to me, I went to visit him in the hospital room, and I you knew saw him when he was dying. I saw him when he was dying, and he had, he was sitting there, and he'd lost about twenty pounds, and we never really knew what he was dying of. It was he wouldn't tell us, and he didn't think he was dying. So I went to visit him, and the, I, as I'm leaving, I said goodbye to him, and he says, "Don't you ever fucking replace me as Dumbledore." And I said, <laughs> "Okay, that's the last thing he the said." Character to me. is dead. <laughs> so. And that was the last thing he said to me. Uh, and then Gambon came in. Gambon came in. Uh, who I was love a, Gambon. He was a character. Yeah. He's, he, he's an interesting guy, but he, he's conservative compared to Harris. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, the last film you directed uh, was Percy Jackson. Percy Jackson, yeah. The, the last feature, feature you did. Yeah. So if that was released in 2010, you shot that in tw- 2009. Right. So you haven't directed a feature in four years. No. And part of that was because of the, of the help. Um, there was a uh, writer-director named Tate Taylor who um, wrote a script, who was a, sort of a director that I had supported over the years. He did a lot of short films, was an actor in L.A. And I knew him 
through a, one of my daughter's school associates. He would always come, when he come to San Francisco, he'd sit down and meet with me and show me what he was working on. He came into my office one day and said, this is my first feature that I want to make. My best friend wrote this book, The Help. And I said, I read the script and I said, this is a fantastic movie. I wanted to direct it. And Tate was like, I want to direct it and I want you to support me so I don't get fired. So I brought the script to a lot of studios. At the same time, the book was starting to heat up. Again, it was one of those books that every woman was reading on the beach. Um, And Steven Spielberg and I sort of reunited to do it. Steven and I met um, in London. He said, what do you think of this guy, Tate Taylor? I said, he's incredibly talented. He wrote a brilliant script. Steven said, as long as you promise that you'll be on the set every day. I said, but I, when I produce a movie, I like to go for the first week so, and then so, go off and do So those guys financed it, DreamWorks? DreamWorks financed it. Uh, we shot in Mississippi in the summertime a couple of years ago. And uh, and you were on the set every day. <laughs> I was there every day. How was that? It was fantastic. I was, was going to say, what's that like for you to be the pure producer? Well, as I said, usually I just... I, if I'm the producer, I like to go for a couple of days, make sure it's it's all in good hands, and then I like to go off and direct or write. With the, in this situation, so I made a promise to Stephen, I was there the entire time. And the interesting thing was because of the level of performances in that film, mm-hmm. getting actually just being able to watch these actresses perform every day. Viola Davis and, and Bryce Dallas Howard and Emma Stone. It just was an amazing sort of front row seat to these these performances. And Tate was just wonderful with the actresses. He was just he's an actor himself. Again, that connection is really helpful. So for me it was it was a bit of a learning experience. Again, it just it opened up another sort of part of filmmaking that I want to get you, involved with. So I was going to say, do you want to make films like that? Because my last question for you is here's a guy who the flame for you that you were drawn to from things I've read about you were movies like The Godfather. Mm-hmm. But you haven't made a movie like The Godfather. Right. And I'm wondering, is that a direction you want to go in now? You see a movie like The Help and you say, do you want to do more, not even so much racially themed, but much more kind of intense drama? Here's the thing. I'm not particularly, uh, I'm not saying I'm not happy with the movies I've made, but I still have a long way to go. Right. Hopefully I can live long enough to get to where I really will be happy with it. Maybe it won't happen. But what I really, really want to do, I would like to make the kind of movies that you and I grew up on, which are the kind of movies, look, Dog Day Afternoon, The Godfather, Serpico, all of those movies were movies that were not only about something, but but were great dramatic films with an enormous sense of humor, by the way. All the films I mentioned are very funny at Mm -hmm. times, yet at the same time, they reached a huge audience. And to me, that's what it was about. I didn't want to make a film that was so special and indie and tiny that Mm -hmm. it wouldn't reach a wide audience. I always felt that when I was watching movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and I was watching Dog Day Afternoon, the performances were so amazing and so authentic and real. And those movies found an audience. Now, unfortunately, most of those types of films are being made for television. So it's, yeah. And apropos of that, you've made films now, written, directed, and produced. Huge films, some of the biggest films of the last 25 years. You've been doing this for 25 years. How has the business changed in the 25 years from your standpoint? Well, I, you know, when Is I... Is it harder to get that movie made? You're talking about that Sidney Lumet-esque drama. Yeah, I've spent the better part of the last year and a half writing films like that. But I can't... It's very, very difficult to get them made in an environment that really is only interested in either sequels or superhero films. If you walked into a 
a studio executive's office in 1978 and said you wanted to make Spider-Man. They would have laughed at you. Yeah. Yeah. Comic books. Oh, my God. That's the lowest form of entertainment. Well, now we're in a situation where that's mostly what's being made. So it's difficult. The help kind of, you know, was made because the book was so successful. And we made it for $28 million, which for a period piece is relatively inexpensive. So if we can find that way to do more of those films, I'd love to do them. And that's probably one of the reasons I haven't directed. The help is really gotten into my head in a big way and said, you can make these movies and people will go see them. And where I've gotten into trouble in my career, movies like Bicentennial Man, movies like Beth Cooper, again, when I did them for fun or when I thought, oh, this will be fun, I'll just go out and make a movie like we're back in film school. It's not the case anymore. There's much more responsibility. Chris Columbus won't stop making movies, but he has taken a slight detour. His first novel, House of Secrets, a middle school fantasy adventure, is out this year. Chris sent an early draft to J.K. Rowling. She said it was too fast-paced. Slow down, she told him. Deepen the characters and work on the complexity. Chris Columbus says he and his co-author Ned Vizzini took that advice to heart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 